Welcome to 42 Answers from Founders for Founders, a podcast series brought to you by Project A Ventures, the operational VC. My name is Rainer Berak, operating partner at Project A, and our guest today is Lubomila Jordanova. Welcome. Hi, hi. Glad to be here. In this podcast, we talk to great founders and we ask them the same set of questions in the domains that we think make a company successful. These are tech, growth, people, data, and ESG. Lubomila, who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? Hi. Uh, first of all, I would like to say thank you for having me. My name is Lubomila. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Plan A. We're a software-as-a-service company that enables uh, businesses, predominantly corporates and fast-scaling startups, to reduce their emissions and report on them, as well as on other ESG uh, metrics. Um, tell us a little bit more about Plan A. Um, who's your target group, for example, and, and, and how exactly are you helping them? It's important for some of the questions that we are asking later. Absolutely. Uh, so Plan A has been working with a wealth of different industries and also uh, companies. And what's been unifying be between them is their commitment to sustainability. We definitely have a few categories of clients. First of all, it's corporates. Uh, we work with uh, MERSC, Societe Generale. Uh, also, Vansi, European Commission is a client as well. Uh, big fashion companies like Ghani. Uh, but also fast-scaling startups like Sorak, Grover, N26, Urban Sports Club, uh, who are committed to not only uh, addressing the need to assess how they're performing on the environmental, social and governance side, but also learn how they can improve and how they can report to their stakeholders on this. And general, definitely B2B, um, software as a service and international, right? Yeah, Plenty is a software as a service platform um, and we're focusing, of course, on working only with businesses and we have an annual subscription model. People. If you would start a company today, what would be your first five hires? My first five hires would be someone with uh, extensive technical background. I wouldn't say a CTO, which many people say. Actually, it could be a lead engineer, uh, but someone that can uh, take a challenge and then translate it into uh, a functioning prototype. Uh, the second person uh, would be uh, definitely someone with product background. Um, I think it's incredibly useful to be able to think in structures and optimize uh, projects and also uh, at scale, um, which is something that definitely I have seen uh, and have benefited from learning about from our product team. And the other three hires, I might surprise you, would be... Uh, Just the go-getters, people that are really willing to do the work, uh, take any job that is uh, at hand, people with maybe business background, but it really doesn't matter. As long as they're passionate about the problem that they're addressing, they're willing to put the hours. Yes, there is extra hours that need to be put. Uh, that are the first three people uh, alongside the tech and the product uh, experts that I would get on board with me. Not surprised about those three. Uh, I would probably do the same. <laughs> um, makes me happy <laughs> were these actually your first five hires no <laughs> uh, the first person that joined our company uh, was uh, our science uh, lead uh, our chief emission accounting officer uh, who came from Potsdam Institute for Climate Research started as an intern um, or more as a volunteer rather than an intern And then uh, he moved into becoming full-time. The second person was a designer. Uh, she volunteered and then also joined a few 
weeks after volunteering uh, as full-time. Um, and then um, the third person was uh, this all-rounded generalist um, and the other two were uh, people with just general business background. What are the hardest hires today? We have the benefit of working in an industry where hiring is actually not that big of an issue. We have a lot of speculative applications that we get on a weekly basis. Uh, uh, sometimes there's a few hundred. It, we've had cases where there's been a few thousand. Uh, so we do benefit from having a lot of excitement about fighting climate change, helping corporates assess their ESG performance. But there's definitely a lack on the market of sales talent. Um, we see a lot of demand uh, for these positions because obviously we're in a city where Celones exists. Uh, we're in a city where there's a lot of uh, dynamics with a lot of funding involved. Um, so that's one challenge. And then the second one that probably wouldn't surprise many of the listeners is uh, data engineers. Uh, we have been able, thank God, to find really incredible data engineers, but it really took like good six months until we were able to find the ones that really fitted our needs. Especially on the sales. Uh, we are getting back to that a little bit later. Um, how do you measure employee satisfaction? So we have a net promoter score internally, which allows us really to understand uh, what is the pulse of the time, how are people feeling about the current events, and we check on this on a monthly basis, which allows us to understand uh, what are the quick changes that we can introduce that can improve things. Uh, we also assess uh, something that might be a bit of a, a more specific case for Plan A is about how aligned do you feel you are towards the whole company's goal? Uh, is your day-to-day -day actively giving you the confidence that you're contributing to the bigger purpose of the business? And then the second bit is how clear do you feel is the goals that are set for yourself by your management or by yourself? Do you use a tool to do that? At this stage, we've tested a few, but we've not committed. So I wouldn't allow myself to recommend any. If anyone has recommendations, they should reach out because okay. we can benefit from that. All right. How do you measure employee performance? We have the OKR system, um, which really allows us to see what is a good uh, performance towards the larger agenda that the whole company has. Um, we also do 360 uh, feedback reviews, uh, as well as also self-assessments. We do think that people who are honest, and this is the kind of quality that we normally select for the team, really allows us uh, to understand uh, Oh, how they think about themselves in the context of today. Um, and everyone normally has quite of a good overview of where they're standing and uh, they're willing to say what they think they still need to improve. How should an org chart look like? What, what's the an organizational structure that you think makes most sense? For the different stages of a company, different org structures make sense. Uh, we have definitely been focused on making sure that uh, we deeply uh, identify ourselves as a product-led company, which means that we have uh, a lot of our structures revolving around the needs of what the tech company has. So we have obviously the operational element, which is including finance, uh, HR, um, also uh, admin uh, kind of activities, uh, people and culture. Uh, we have the commercial side of things, but then The major part of the organization sits on the uh, product and engineering where we have 
a lot of the different uh, intricacies and different teams, including design, including also the scientific bit, which for us is quite important uh, aligned. Um, we have been uh, embedding in the way we do our work uh, project-led approach, which means that it, we don't work in silos as the marketing team or as the sales team, but rather we organize ourselves in units according to whatever the agenda is for this particular moment um, and whatever this milestone uh, requires for us to embed uh, as skill sets. Okay. What's your approach to culture? I'm a bit obsessed with culture. Uh, I have been in a lot of toxic environments uh, in investment banking, also in other finance setups. And uh, this has really allowed me to understand the value of demonstrating on a daily basis how much you cherish your people. And uh, for this reason, since day one, even when planning had no money, uh, no people, <laughs> we have been spending a lot of effort in uh, making sure that there's a lot of openness, a lot of feedback uh, opportunity, a lot of equality, uh, uh, and also a lot of fun. Uh, I'm someone that constantly seeking opportunities to laugh. And I think this is also now part of the way we select people, uh, even in the, the interview process. So uh, for us, culture is really everything. Um, how we manage this is really through a lot of engagements that are very practical. We have weekly activities, we have weekly educational sessions, which you can attend, not mandatorily, but definitely there for you to take if you want. There's a lot of growth opportunities. We invest a lot in uh, um, our team and how they learn, how they progress their career, because of course, yeah, they work for plan A, but also they are working for themselves, for their own growth. And the final bit is that we do uh, a lot of fun things on a quarterly basis. Uh, just a few months ago, we did uh, Indian cooking where everyone got a package in their house and they could cook together in front of Zoom. Uh, uh, we organized just recently an on-site in Berlin where everyone came uh, from all the different offices we have internationally. Um, we have uh, next week a big party that is just uh, there for people to get to know each other by doing sports and kind of uh, having a drink uh, uh, together. So this is something that now is kind of the stipulate in the way we do things on uh, on weekly, monthly and uh, yearly basis. Is plan A remote first or office first? We're people first, which means that our focus is on allowing anyone to select where they want to be working from. Uh, we do have offices, uh, and these offices normally are used for meetings with our clients, um, workshops within the team, um, in official gatherings, like where we can have some drinks together. Um, and uh, they are there for anyone to maybe just find a space to work outside of their house. We have such offices in uh, Munich, Berlin, Paris, uh, opening London uh, in a few weeks. Uh, but the truth is, is that um, 70% of employees are in and out of the office most of the time. Um, and anyone can decide. The only thing that we do is we basically are uh, making sure that people have the possibility to choose uh, because we know that we have some employees, especially those with families that um, cannot find peace and quiet in their house. So they need to be coming to the office to be able to achieve this. Tech. Is Plan A a tech company? Yes. And I am incredibly proud to be able to say this because definitely uh, we have been learning about all the principles of being such over the course of the last few years. And in the first year of Plan A as a 
uninformed and uh, immature entrepreneur. Uh, we were battling between being altogether a company, let alone a tech company. Um, so uh, I can definitely confirm we're a tech company because uh, our product is really by what we swear. If you split into product and development or tech or IT on the other side, um, who, who of the two is in the lead? I would say uh, product is in the lead because we have a really complex scientific uh, setup. Um, a quarter of the Planet team is climate data scientists and decarbonization experts, policy experts. And this has really required us to have a really in-depth perspective on um how to think uh, through their lens about where we're headed, how to embed design in this, and then the data engineering and the data processing, which is really complex also by us, acts as this foundation, as this really solid setup that we have in the background. But the starting point is always uh, the scientific bit. And that really allows us to think uh, at scale because uh, data processing is really crucial, but only if it's thought of as part of something that is bigger than it. If you think about from features to, to larger chunks of the development, who decides what's to be developed next? It's really a collaborative process. We don't have this kind of uh, uh, approach where someone decides by themselves. We have really strict ways in which we learn from our clients. We have strict ways in which we learn from our sales opportunities. And we have embedded this into the product roadmap definition process, which means that for any step of the way before we go into putting uh, a task or a, a JIRA ticket in front of the eyes of an employee, there's been an assessment that is data-driven, uh, that is defined if this is possible, that has been not only looked at from the commercial side, but also from the product side, from the engineering side. Um, and uh, it finally, uh, it has uh, arrived at the point where we have the conviction that it needs to be built. Can you see, say a few more words about that decision process, um, also probably about the timelines, which iterations you do, etc.? We have uh, quite of a quick iteration process. Uh, we change the product on a weekly basis. So there's a lot of evolution, uh, a lot of, a lot of novelty that constantly comes out. Uh, and without going into like all of the details of it, uh, we have a really complex data process. Uh, point system that allows us to identify what is worth the effort, what is going to bring return on investment, what is going to be uh, um, allowing us to see immediate results fast, and also what is a product and what is a feature, uh, kind of this decision making as, is this how we kicking off a new chapter for the whole planning product, or is this actually just something that falls with as a piece of what we have already? Um, you mentioned product-led growth earlier already. So what's your take? Um, and, and, and how does that work for plan A? Product-led growth is this idea that uh, you learn in an unbiased manner about what is really uh, the good elements of what you have been able to offer to your clients versus what is really the result of a marketing gimmick, uh, something that has just been a convincing messaging. It is allowing you really to have uh, this flywheel effect that is allowing for uh, uh, any company really to be able to scale its revenues fast, but also be able to uh, work um, without the noise that maybe you can get from uh, external uh, sources. Plenty has been focusing on having a product-led growth for uh, a long time. Um, we believe that our product experience is really what our customers are in for when they buy from us. It's not about the label. It's really about having this 
embedded sustainability experience in the way they do their business, um, having this layer of assessment on ESG uh, in the way they do uh, their business. So that is what we offer and our product is the best way to get feedback about this. Which role does design play at Plan A? Design has been since day one quite crucial because we really have understood how important it is to be visual, to have storytelling, to have also a deep understanding about the personas that define your uh, um, product. And with this in mind, we have embedded it in every single step of the way we define um, our user experience as well. Uh, we have a lot of workshops uh, on monthly basis in our team. We uh, get a lot of feedback from our clients, and this is embedded in the user experience as well. And this really has allowed us to have uh, an approach that is mm, helping us to think a bit further than simply what the feedback of today is. It really allows us to think about where we headed and also like how uh, can we make this more of a pleasant journey. One thing that maybe is important to add it in the context of our industry is that Today, the maturity of the sustainability industry is really low, which means that the way companies think about sustainability is maybe this one-off report on a yearly basis. Uh, and what we're doing with our product is really allowing them to think about it as a day-to-day -day activity, as something that they can embed in their activities with their team members. It could be part of their collaborative effort to become more sustainable, but also to become more um, economically viable as a business because sustainability is actually uh, a good way for you to get better return on investment. This requires really clever design uh, because there's a lot of resistance uh, for people to start using this kind of a product uh, without thinking of it as a one-off exercise on a yearly basis, which is why we swear by our design and I'm super happy to have an incredible uh, design team uh, that really is at the core of everything that we do together with the science team. Would you ever outsource software development? No, because we've tried in the beginning when we didn't have uh, the developers in-house for the first like six months of the existence of the company. And it just created more problems than it actually allowed us really to be uh, uh, achieving. What I mean by this is that a lot, a lot of uh, questions were not asked uh, and a lot of this resulted in bad data infrastructure, uh, design that was not aligned with the larger picture that was embedded into a bigger vision for what we were headed to do. And also just a lot of frustration and wasted time. Um, that is not to say that this is not a viable option for other companies. I think there's different models that maybe can benefit from having a outsourced approach to testing and prototyping because maybe this is a cheaper and faster way of doing things. For us, simply it doesn't work because we're building a very complex product and it's not something that we are going to offer in 10 different business models. There's only one way in which this can grow further and it's how do you embed this into the organization? How do you offer this unified uh, user experience? And if there's something clunky about this, it just ends up being uh, problematic and leads to dissatisfaction. Growth. If you think about the complete funnel, brand, marketing, sales, customer success, do you at Plan A have all these functions? Luckily, I can say yes. Uh, and this is something that has been there for the last uh, more than two years. 
Um, I have seen the benefit of each one of those uh, before we had it. Uh, and I was always feeling this FOMO of why, why are we not actually spending more effort into this? Uh, in terms of branding, uh, we've had the benefit of existing since 2016, 17, and that has really allowed us to build this thought leadership position on the market and uh, to be able to share our knowledge about climate change with many people um, and therefore be able to educate a lot of corporates uh, on uh, and a lot of businesses on how they can do uh, their work on the topic, which has built uh, uh, us as a, as a knowledge house for, for the topic. From the beginning, we also had marketing because my co-founder, uh, who's leading marketing in uh, Plan A, has been uh, working on this topic through content, through communication. So we've had an academy since the beginning. Um, sales is something that I've been doing since the beginning. And now we have a full-fledged, huge uh, sales team. And customer success is something that we have since one and a half years, led by Jacob, who is coming from expansion and VR, has been like launching markets at hundreds per month. Um, and we have been uh, really spending a lot of effort and time in building his team as well. Is any of these growth functions, I, I would group all of them under growth, um, in the lead and having a stronger role than the others? And, and how's the structure among them? I think we don't have necessarily a lead from these functions. They come as a step-by-step -step process, I would say, because you have this brand identity that stands for the first engagement that a company would have uh, with you. The marketing is where you hook them on the idea that they can work with you because you've demonstrated that you know how to deal with the problem that they have. And then sales comes in then to explain what specifically we're capable of doing for this company and customer success then takes over to make sure that this relationship lasts and is one that is uh, satisfying exactly the needs of this company. So I would say, again, it's a very collaborative approach. We have this culture in the company where everyone's opinion matters. Uh, doesn't matter if you're an intern, doesn't matter if you're a C-level um, and anyone can be the lead in a project They just need to phrase it and organize it in a manner that it also can uh, support the work of others. Mm, how can you make sure they don't work in silos? I'm more thinking here about marketing and sales because what you see in B2B sometimes is uh, marketing creates leads and sales uh, is supposed to convert them. And if it doesn't work, then they start to blame each other uh, that either the leads weren't great or that the conversion afterwards is not working well. Uh, of course, this is, is a problem rather if, if something does not work. You can even take this question further to brand and marketing might say, based on that brand, it's hard it's hard to generate leads, et cetera. But how, ca how can you break down the silos and make sure that especially when things are tough sometimes, they, they, they work together? The most important bit of our work since day one has been really to enable processes and structures to be established in a way that there is a repeated effort to make sure that no one uh, is staying in a silo. Um, communication, even with the best intended people and the best intended setup can often be leading to these miscommunications because someone didn't hear something, someone was not uh, involved in a phone call and this is when something was decided, but then it was not documented. So there was no way to find it. So being really focused on good documentation has been incredibly helpful for us. Uh, we have everything written down. Uh, everything is sitting in Confluence, like for many companies, but for us, it really has been able to allow us to think of 
These are the campaigning efforts. These are the efforts related to sales. These are the KPIs we need to achieve. This is being tracked in this place versus another. And it takes us very little time to onboard someone new, uh, but then it also allows us to really be uh, then rigorous with our approach to assessing whether we're doing well or not. And then this fits into the whole OKR system where you're like, okay, that's what we set as an agenda for this month. These are the contributing elements along the way. Let's see what actually was achieved at the end. Um, what was the way we could improve this? Oh, we see that maybe on the marketing side, there could have been a bit more effort into creating uh, more leads uh, from this particular channel and so on. But having this documentation, having these processes really allows you to backtrack everything and then see at which elements uh, there's maybe something missing. How important is brand for you? We've never paid a single penny uh, for a single event at which I've spoken. Uh, we've never paid a single uh, penny for uh, uh, any of the visibility that we've gotten or the initiatives at which we've been invited to participate. And I think this demonstrates that uh, we have developed a, a brand that is recognized, respected, um, and it's really organic. It's raw in a way. Uh, now it's obviously a lot more professionalized than it has ever been, but um, it is something that really offers a lot of uh, value to others. Uh, so if you ask me how I feel about brand, I think uh, one thing that I hate in life is wasted, wasted space. Uh, I really dislike when efforts are being put into something and they don't lead to anything. So if we're talking about brand, then let's make sure that it's adding value to someone else's life. Um, so... For us, the Planet brand is actually one that is dedicated to uh, educating people, really empowering others. Uh, yeah, we do get benefits along the way because people recognize us for what we do, but it is something that adds value to other people. And for me, this is the value of what we can offer as a brand. So you would say it probably is important for you, but the approach for you is a, is a very direct and, and product and solution focused one. Absolutely. I feel like we have enough of the fluff out there, especially when you look at the B2C segment. There's just so much money that have been put into growing visibility, growing brands and making sure that everyone remembers your name. But did this add value uh, into the life of this person? Probably for the voucher that they got uh, for the time being that they could get a dinner for free. Sure. But then in the longer term, this is really not... Uh, something that they associate their lifestyle with. It's something that was just this momentary reflection on how they felt about this particular uh, use case opportunity or whatever it is. What a brand should be able to offer is really a value add to someone's life because then you become this intrinsic uh, need uh, into someone's existence uh, rather than something that is there to exhaust their resources in a hidingly manner. <laughs> Which marketing channels do you use and why? I think we're quite well uh, rounded on this. We definitely have been spending quite some time on uh, LinkedIn. It's an organic channel for business-focused target groups. Um, we have been spending time with events. Uh, we have been spending quite some effort also in content, um, but also campaigning We really have a little bit of everything. Uh, I think one channel that is organically grown for us is my LinkedIn. Um, there is actually no huge team behind it. The truth is, is that uh, a lot of the content uh, uh, that you see there uh, is provoked by my thoughts. And for the rest of it, it's 
provoked by something that I've seen, experienced or something like that. So this has been super helpful because it has connected us to a lot of people that have joined now the team. Uh, it has connected us to so many clients uh, and also uh, so many different opportunities. Um, but I would say we try to respect the fact that people work with different streams and with different focus. Uh, and with this in mind, we actually spend some time on uh, each one of the channels that you can think of. But no, no TikTok yet. <laughs> uh, I was uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I was on a call with uh, someone from TikTok and uh, they were trying to explain to me how actually the channel has been insanely fast uh, at supporting businesses. We're not there yet. We'll test it one day, but <laughs> definitely not there yet. And also no no SEA. If I, if I go to Google search now and I search for how ca who can help my company um, like helping the environment or so, I, Plan A wouldn't be one of the top ads coming up, I guess. Uh, we do it through content. So there's a bit more organic. Uh, we do show up as the first results on uh, scope one, two, and three. Uh, what is corporate sustainability? All these kinds of things. Because we, again, believe that instead of targeting you by asking you to pay us money, we can explain to you actually how uh, you can, first of all, understand the problem and then how we can address it afterwards. Is performance marketing dead or dying anytime soon? Of obviously, related questions related to the GDPR the developments that we have and, and all the changes that we see in, in that space. People have gotten a bit spoiled uh, with the fact that there's a lot of interest in their attention, which means that everyone needs to step up their game and really spend effort into making sure that they are adding value to someone's life. They're spending time uh, on the activities that are not simply there to provoke this immediate uh, attention uh, span reduction, but rather really allow for uh, someone to be involved in a community, involved in a movement, in an uh, exciting uh, discussion. And performance marketing really does not offer this in the way that uh, any of the other channels would, which means that Most likely it is not dead, but it is one that requires a bit of a reformulation. You do have salespeople. I think you, you mentioned that earlier already, right? Yes. So, and I think you also stated the problem already, um, where to find good digital savvy salespeople. What, what's, what's your approach? What, what's your, uh, what would you recommend? Sales is definitely one of the positions that has been, um, one more challenging to hire for, uh, Having said that, of course, I can definitely confirm we're spoiled in terms of the amount of people that are wanting to work with us. Yet still, uh, SaaS salespeople that normally are the ones that are the best paid uh, in, and they're obviously bombarded by opportunities for companies that also pay well, um, are not necessarily always satisfied with maybe a Series A funded company, even Series B funded company, purely because they can go into a Salesforce, they can go into a Salones and they get like three or four times the salary that they would get into a company uh, like ours. Where you find them um, is in the uh, places where their interests are sitting We have actually been quite impressed by the amount of people that have joined uh, us uh, through their passion for climate change uh, and addressing climate change. Uh, you find them in the groups of friends. Uh, we do have a referral scheme and actually there's been a lot of people that have come through this. Um, 
And finally, you find them at the top uh, universities. I'm someone that doesn't necessarily believe only in CVs and in labels. I think that smart people, driven people are ones that learn fast, which means that they are often um, maybe considered as not as experienced enough, but the truth is, is that they are um, more willing to learn than many others. So depending on what specifically you're needing in this particular moment, uh, if you need tech-savvy salespeople that are more junior, find them uh, in the best universities, find them uh, in um, the channels where uh, young people would be hanging out, if you're looking for more senior ones, really look for those that have the passion for the problem that you're addressing. In our case, this is climate change, but there's so many other things that even for a company that is working on a data uh, analytics tool or is working on a Web3 um, tool, uh, there is this passion that needs to be activated. And most likely, if you don't work with that as part of your interview process, you have missed the opportunity to engage them. And maybe the salary at that case is going to be the defining factor of why they go somewhere else. Data. How does data make Plan A successful? Data for Plan A is everything. We have assessed more than a few million now data points. We have uh, been able to reduce on average 7% emissions. Uh, and this is thanks to the fact that we've processed all the data, given indication of where the companies can improve. And then finally, uh, given an opportunity for the company to see their results afterwards uh, on the improvements. So for us, data is really everything. Data by us is divided in two. On one hand, we have the climate data science element, uh, which is essentially how do you translate any data point into CO2 emissions, into waste, into water uh, um, metrics, into ESG metrics. Um, but then we also have a lot of additional data points that come from internal, external sources that allow us to build the full picture. Financial data, uh, data related to employees. Um, and with all of this, we're then able to give a fair and accountable assessment of where the company is standing on their performance, how they can improve, and then uh, what are the optimal ways in which they uh, can start saving costs, start saving CO2, start engaging also their employees. It's fascinating because for you, it's really like essential for, for the product that you are actually selling to your, to your business clients. If you look internally, which of your own functional areas get support from your data team? Usually, I mean, like for most companies, it's marketing. Uh, I guess that's the same for you. Is any others, products, people, et cetera? Honestly, for us, it's every single team is touching upon data uh, because data is not the analytics bit only. Uh, of course, we have the analytics on understanding how the product is used. This is used by customer success. Uh, we use data to assess our marketing successes, sales successes. But the truth is, is that uh, the success of our product itself is dependent on the amount of data that we process on the amount of data that we then turn into actionable insights for the business. And then finally, on the data that falls back into the system to give us an indication how this initial set of data improved based on the suggestions that we made. So there's quite a lot of uh, influx of data uh, and uh, a lot of benefits to that. And every single team, literally every single team touches upon data uh, from one side or the other. Does your data team answer specific questions or are they free to explore data available and then find opportunities? Both, I would say, because we have been um, 
really relying and swearing by data for a long time now, which means that we do know what kind of insights we want to get from the data. But also we know that with the geniuses that we have on the team, they should have the freedom also to come up with a challenge that they've identified by just looking at some data sets to then be able to say, okay, we can now pinpoint a new opportunity for decarbonization for businesses, or we can now pinpoint a new opportunity for customer engagement. All of these things are there for them to grab. And we even have actually the commitment to the team um, for them to have the space in their day-to-day to test things and do things without being necessarily aligned only to some Jira ticket or project that they're part of. Within plan A, how can you make sure that the people really do what the data recommend instead of just looking at it, turning around, doing something else? Well, first of all, there's uh, a lot of accountability because once we commit commit to assessing something and then making the analysis, understanding the insights from it, we then use this as um, what we have as this virtual poster, so to say of why this project even exists. Why does this uh, activity, uh, this problem-solving uh, project uh, is uh, has been created? So with this in mind, like we have this North Star or we have this vision uh, already set out as an agenda. And this is at the core of why the project exists. There's always a beginning of a project which says, what is the problem that we're solving? What is the data that validated that this problem needs to be solved? And by the end of this project, there is like a post-mortem to understand, was this really the way we were intending to solve this problem? Did we follow what the data told us? If not, like, let's go back to the drawing board. By now, we've learned also to be really good and very studious with learning from the data. And we make sure we really swear by it because... Otherwise, it becomes so dissatisfying for employees to be getting themselves involved into a project and then not really have any uh, one being accountable for that. Which data tools and infrastructure do you use? Well, we use quite a lot of different ones, uh, tools for tracking our OKRs, uh, tools for tracking our sales efforts, uh, marketing, like anything that is basically within the stack of a business that would be needed uh, is within our realm of usage. Google Analytics, we use uh, also, of course, Confluence, Jira, uh, we use uh, HubSpot, uh, we're transitioning now to another system that is also related to sales, so really have a lot of insights. We also have another analytics tool, uh, so honestly, we have made sure that any department is data-enabled, um, and uh, with this in mind, we have um, all of these different tools in the hands of people. We also have allowed for people to suggest tools. Um, we have, for example, employees that track their time uh, and they're using a tool called Togo, which I'm assuming you've heard of. It really is up to the team to optimize their work so that they don't need to uh, waste uh, their time and they feel satisfied because the data shows that they have done what they intended to. Uh, these are maybe some of the examples that I can give. Um, how is your data team structured? And I'm uh, specifically curious uh, because of the answer that you gave on the previous one, because it requires from a data team quite some flexibility. And if they want to support them to really adapt, like not they don't come with that one solution, like their one data warehouse or whatever infrastructure, but to, I guess, to integrate with, with the different teams that they support. So which roles do you have in that data team and, and, and how do they work together? 
We have this project-based approach that I explained in the beginning when we were discussing the org structure, which means that for each project, there is a product lead, there is a design person, there's also the data engineers, um, there's the different uh, developers, but also business uh, people coming from customer success or sales, depending on the project and marketing. So for each one of those projects, we have uh, this know-how sitting within it. And then the data team itself is always a defining element of how the project is structured, because then they can say, this is a novel channel, a novel challenge. We've never assessed this before. Or they can say, okay, let's use the template that we used for the previous time that we defined some, uh, you know, um, some activities related to uh, customer engagement or user experience. Um, is there still like I understand? I think I understand more and more the the, the way you look at org charts, and it's very project uh, oriented, so therefore very uh, actually flexible. But is there still like one place I would say the, the the person responsible overall for the data team is reporting to person X Y Z? Where is it located in your org chart? The data teams are in the um, engineering team. So we have uh, the data backend, frontend as individual teams within the engineering team. Is GDPR rather a struggle or an opportunity in your opinion? We always get shocked by these frameworks that are there to align us on how to do things. And I find uh, GDPR to be one uh, that maybe was a bit clunky at the release Uh, if this was a product that was VC funded, probably the release would be similar to an Apple iPhone announcement. Uh, rather, it was more of a, a German government sends you a letter that is in a language that you don't understand. So I would definitely say uh, they did have an issue with the marketing part of it and with the branding. But uh, other than that, it, it's just one of those frameworks that we're going to see in other shapes and forms coming our way. I have a lot of respect since I've been living in Germany for the respect to data privacy. Uh, I think it's a necessary step, especially with what we're seeing at the moment in this world, where any kind of event is actually with a layer related to a cyber uh, attack or a cyber war. And with these kinds of approaches, we need to be respectful to these uh, offers of frameworks. I think we're going to see very similar ones in many different uh, domains, especially when it comes to our domain, sustainability, uh, ESG, there's just a wealth of uh, unifying ways of thinking about KPIs that are going to be coming our way. And we just need to prepare for that. Um, the struggle is still uh, where do we feel comfortable with the government dictating our way of doing things? Um, because supposedly we're a free society and we should be able to have the freedom to make our own choices. For this one in particular, we struggled a bit in the beginning to make sure that every, everything was in line. We had to speak to a lot of different lawyers and so on. But ultimately, um, we do respect it because we work with a lot of banks. We work with a lot of different larger institutions. And for them, uh, this is allowing them to secure uh, the, the security also of their clients. So it is one of those things that we just need to live with. Environmental, social and governance. Why did you start an ESG company? I, I hope I can say Plan A is an ESG company. Of course. Uh, and I am proud of this label because as much as still ESG might be a bit of a confusing term because it includes so many different elements, environmental, social governance, uh, 
that are these values that a company needs to embed in the way they build themselves, uh, it is there to demonstrate the direction in which our economy should be headed um, and how uh, ultimately in the next five to 10 years, any company is going to be, whether they like it or not. I built Plan A because I am someone that when I see a large issue and injustice, I find myself wanting to be part of the solution. Uh, I can't sit still when I see uh, someone struggling or someone suffering. And I can't uh, ignore uh, an event as large as climate change uh, in the moment like it happened to me in 2016 when I just found myself um, really shocked by a trip where I went on a beach in Morocco and ended up cleaning uh, plastic instead of surfing for a week, which really kicked me off in thinking, how are we thinking we're going to be building uh, the next stages of our economy if we are not able to cherish the one thing that is giving us for free a lot of resources? So this kicked me off and uh, it got me thinking about what am I doing? Uh, what is my personal responsibility? And after educating myself for a year, I felt comfortable enough to say, I understand the science to the extent that I can. I see that there's a big opportunity for businesses to be at the forefront of addressing this. And that led me to decide to test myself in this because I got too passionate for the uh, solution of the problem to allow myself to really sit still and just continue being in my finance field that I definitely felt comfortable in. Um, I was just riding the wave of the growth of fintech. Everything was amazing, amazing people. Uh, yet um, I was just way too excited uh, to be to be solving the problem rather than just observing it. Besides helping your clients uh, to do something for the environment, what does Plan A internally do in order to be environmentally friendly? Plan A is doing a lot to be environmentally friendly. First of all, we have a, a science-based target, uh, which even goes beyond the traditional 42% reduction. Um, we are a B Corp. Uh, we just got certified and we are in the top 5% of the world. We're the highest scoring uh, ESG company in the world at the moment, uh, which is really exciting. Um, we have a sustainability team in-house. Uh, which is built up of commercial, but also science and operational people uh, who are there to kick off different initiatives uh, for the team. Uh, we recently did a cleanup. Uh, we now have more plants in the office than people, uh, which probably with the hybrid model doesn't seem like a big success, but we have like a lot of, a lot of different plants um, uh, against the amount of people that we have in the Berlin office uh, or in Berlin altogether. Um, and uh, we don't buy meat at any of the Plan A events. Nothing that is coming from Plan A budgets uh, is going towards uh, anything that harms the planet. So we really think about this all the time. Um, um, I travel by train uh, most of the time. When I need to go far away, uh, all of the emissions related to that are compensated. So just a few examples of what we're doing. How about the social part in ESG? Uh, what, what is Plan A doing here? So for those of you, maybe um, not you, uh, Rena, but maybe someone that uh, is not necessarily familiar with the S in the E, S, and G. Uh, in S, we're talking about the social. This is the engagement with the employees. This is uh, obviously like how do you put the rights of the employees at the highest standards, security, uh, health, uh, and also like fair uh, treatment. 
first of all, uh, we, in terms of salaries, uh, um, paying above the not only average, but like above what the, the normal standards for, for, for salaries for the jobs that we have within the team. Um, second of all, is that we've allowed a lot of flexibility so that the employees are really feeling comfortable with being at the place where they want to work, at the place where they feel safe, especially with COVID. This was really important to make sure that they feel secure, well taken care of. Um, and also uh, the fact that we work with uh, suppliers that are treating their uh, employees, but also their different stakeholders uh in a in a fair way uh we only work with suppliers that can really demonstrate that they don't have any child labor uh within their way of doing work um they don't have uh any uh atrocities or any health and safety issues related to that um and finally we have a lot of effort put into making sure that there's a lot of diversity in the team plan a teams uh is more or less like 50 50 men and women um, and we also have more than 40 nationalities, uh, people with a lot of different perspectives, religions, sexual preferences, and this is accepted. This is something that is cherished and really appreciated. Yeah, tap starts to tap a little bit already, even into governance. Which criteria do you follow there? For governance, uh, again, maybe just to explain uh, the concept there, we're talking about like risk, reputation, uh, corruption, compliance, uh, all these kinds of uh, elements that are maybe uh, important for uh, um, a company that is most likely a bit of a larger size than us. Um, for us, they're important. It's just that we at this stage have uh, not stumbled upon a lot of challenges of being uh, with high G performance. Um, on the corruption side, we don't work with anyone that requires bribes. <laughs> uh, we don't have any uh, uh, any activities in countries that are known for um, atrocities on a population level, uh, war uh, and so on. Um, we have, since the war in Ukraine, uh, Uh, made it official that we're not working with Russia. Uh, we've had like actually a few opportunities there, but uh, we kindly refused because of the current situation. Um, so these are the small things that we have done, uh, but we definitely see a lot of this being more of a consideration and a challenge and a decision for the larger clients that we have just because they work across many uh, different systems and uh, political setups. If you're a startup founder and you need to close the next funding round, um, do you think a focus on ESG is making it easier to get funding? Or do you think that investors rather see that as a deflection from full focus on revenue? The investors that have informed themselves enough on ESG actually know that they can make more money if they are paying the premium for companies that have uh, ESG embedded in the value system of the company. If you are fundraising now, in, if you don't explain the angle that makes you a ESG compliant or ESG focused company, you most likely are missing a, a few uh, million or a few tens of millions in your valuation. Um, just because we need to simply start understanding that the next version of the economy in which we operate at the moment is one where sustainability is going to be deeply embedded into everything that we do, regardless if we like it or not. Um, And I do like it because it gives me comfort that we're going to start understanding these KPIs that at the moment are missing from our assessment 
And for the investors that are looking into any space, ESG is a really solid consideration because they know they can make more money. Uh, we see it with the multiples that ex at the moment exist in this field. We see it with the valuations that are uh, popping up one after the other. Uh, there's just a lot of value in thinking about the future uh, more proactively while building a company for the future. Do you have an ESG officer or somebody similar at Plan A? Yes, we have a sustainability lead uh, uh, who is part of our science team. Okay, and so so where in the org chart would I locate that? For us, it's a bit odd because keep in mind, we have like uh, 20 people, 25 people that are uh, coming from climate data science. So we conveniently have 25 people that can be uh, our chief sustainability officer. Uh, we have this person within the science team uh, and that's someone that is... Uh, Uh, there to assume also the, the responsibility to manage also the planning sustainability agenda. Last three questions. Which is the one podcast all founders should listen to? The two podcasts that I would recommend uh, definitely is uh, one that is a bit more provocative, All In. Uh, this is uh, Jason Kalaganis. Uh, uh, he is speaking for two, three hours uh, a week with uh, a few other super successful Silicon Valley Uh, founders, investors, uh, operators, and talks about the, the latest announcements in the VC industry. Um, there's a lot of swear words. There's a lot of uh, capitalist thinking. No one cares about ESG, but it definitely is a good reflection on super smart people thinking about where the future is headed. Uh, I do always add my lens, uh, which is related to like, How does this fit this vision where sustainability is also part of the agenda? But if you want to learn just some basics about how to think about um, VC and also just building a super successful company, that's one. Um, and the ones that are a bit more studious, a bit more uh, defined by learnings is the uh, A16Z podcast. Um, I find it to be a useful place where I learn about uh, crypto, about uh, um, Web3. And if you allow me, because obviously I'm passionate about sustainability, a funny one that I uh, religiously listen to is Sustainababble. It's these two British guys that have uh, a lot of sense of humor uh, that is not always really successful, but they definitely explain really clearly, okay, how to think about hospitals and sustainability, how to think about food production and sustainability. And they really clearly explain it. It's really uh, nicely done in an hour. Um, what are your two top pieces of advice for early stage founders? First of all, stand behind your values. I think it's quite challenging to see how many founders just go for building a company with the idea, I'm using someone's money to do something that might work, might not. Put your passion into something that you really care about when you're building your company, because then the results are going to be a lot more uh, successful than uh, if you are simply using this vehicle of money, vehicle of the VC industry. Uh, and honestly, having now incredible investors behind us, I have so much respect for the VC industry and I know how much thought goes into selecting the companies they work with. So if someone trusts you, make sure you put your effort into really making sure that um, your values come through, uh, your best efforts come through, but really your uh, uh, 
true passion is embedded in the way you build the product because this is only the only way you can build a company that is really going to deliver this 10x that you want they want anyone wants uh um rather than simply um the quick cash that is just going to burn very fast and probably uh lose value for many the second advice that i have uh which is incredibly um important uh for me and i've seen it be uh important for many others that i have uh close to me is uh surround yourself with incredible people i think working with smart dedicated positive people has made life so much easier because you don't feel alone you constantly have someone to bounce off ideas with you know that when you go for a few days off or if you need time to focus on strategy someone else is going to take care of the things that you're not focusing on um and you need to feel this in order to be able to deliver your best results last question who are the two other founders i should ask this set of questions and you will make an introduction for me i definitely would highly recommend jochen from flixbus uh jochen is not only a mentor he's a friend and also since recently an investor in planet and this is the first place where i'm saying this so um announcement uh and i definitely have learned so much from him uh and with the humbleness that he's been building flixbus with the incredible intelligence compassion for uh, and passion for people um and i think he has a lot of know-how that he can share uh with many uh, uh of the listeners another person that is probably really interesting for you to speak to um is uh christo from payhawk payhawk just became a unicorn uh after within two months they raised like two funding rounds of 100 and something fun and they've been now supported by lightspeed and a lot of other incredible investors Christo has uh, an interesting perspective because he's been building the company from the place where I come from which is Bulgaria and has been doing this uh, in an incredibly product like matter uh, he is a product guy himself um but also has been doing it with the humbleness of knowing that you are not judged in the same way if you're building a company in London in Berlin versus Sofia um yet they've been able to become now the most uh successful company in the expenses field except uh uh um uh, except i guess some of the maybe more established dinosaurs in this field so uh i think it's really exciting to to learn about his perspective uh and be able to also um uh, uh, understand how this product like mentality can really deliver a lot of results regardless of where you're based thank you so much thanks for these 42 answers that i bet will be super interesting for all the audience and the founders of tomorrow um thanks a lot i'm very much looking forward for getting these introductions um and stay tuned hope to speak to you soon bye bye we hope you enjoyed our podcast if you did how about you subscribe on spotify and or itunes and give us a rating 